Majority of my society, if they stay home, they will die in hunger. But if they come outside as they are doing now, working daily, they will die in COVID-19. From the Yale Broadcast Studio, this is The Big Picture with Belabas Bincreta. Welcome to The Big Picture. On this podcast, I'll be exploring the world's most consequential questions with some of the smartest people trying to answer them. We know, at least intellectually, that the world is an incredibly complex web. But the COVID-19 pandemic is pulling a thread that unravels connections we took for granted, like medical supplies, pharmaceuticals, food, human migration, travel, the global economy. And now we're seeing, with our own eyes, how a virus can infect a single human in southern China and cause disaster in northern Italy or eastern Pennsylvania just a couple of weeks later. In the same way, events today in countries like Somalia or Syria will affect all corners of the world in just a few months. It's not certain exactly what those consequences will be, but what seems certain is that they will be felt where people currently don't expect them. As my first guest, global health policy expert Benjamin Mason Meyer puts it, a disease anywhere is a threat to people everywhere. Now, given the nature of this crisis, it's been confounding to me that media coverage remains largely focused on domestic developments, despite this being arguably the most globalized crisis in world history. Now, I get that people are concerned about local and national cases and deaths. I live in Connecticut, and I look up those numbers regularly. But there's a whole set of urgent reasons, not only moral, but practical, to care about how COVID affects societies across the world, even if they don't make it to our evening news. The vast majority of the world's population, of course, live in the so-called Global South, where most healthcare systems were at breaking point even before the pandemic. Many of the world's least prepared countries are in Africa, where the virus is expected to hit hard in the next two or three weeks. So in this first episode, we'll also hear from Deko Mohammed, a truly heroic doctor in Mogadishu, Somalia, who's at the forefront of the COVID fight in a country with 19 ICU beds for 15 million people. Not 1900, not 90, just 19. But to lay ground, let's look at the regulatory and legal systems that could have made this pandemic less destructive. What systems are in place to react to global pandemics? Why are we seeing these systems fail? Why are countries like the United States withdrawing from international cooperation at a time when it is needed the most? We'll hear from Ben about how travel bans and visa restrictions not only violate international law, but may have actually exacerbated the pandemic. Ben is an associate professor of global health policy at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He's a prolific scholar and has written two recent books at the intersection of global health and human rights. His forthcoming text will be published next month by Oxford University Press and is called Foundations of Global Health and Human Rights. He's also been one of the most interesting voices in this pandemic to follow on Twitter, where he is Benjamin M. Meyer. I'm glad he was able to join us. Enjoy my interview with Benjamin Mason Meyer. Ben, welcome to the program. 
Thank you so much for addressing this truly pressing issue of global justice in the midst of an unprecedented pandemic. Now, you've spent the last two decades thinking and writing about the intersection of human rights and global health, and especially infectious diseases. Before I ask you about the imminent crisis facing the global south and about how we got to this point, could you explain to our listeners just what scholars such as yourself mean when they say human rights-based approach to global health? What are some of the hallmarks of this approach? Human rights are in so many ways central to the practice of global health rising out of the extreme difficulties that were faced by the entire world during the Second World War. Nations came together under the promise through the World Health Organization that the enjoyment of the highest attainable standard of health is one of the fundamental rights of every human being. It is that right to health that has become a foundation for national public health efforts and global health governance. And in the context of infectious disease control, the World Health Organization first came to see human rights and public health as inextricably linked in the early years of the AIDS response. Recognizing that the most effective approaches to respecting and protecting human rights would also provide a way to uphold public health, avoiding quarantines, discrimination, and stigma. We see this clearly in the coronavirus response, that nations have been most effective when they have avoided infringements on individual liberties, and beyond that, where they've implemented social distancing measures in ways that fulfill the basic social and economic rights of their populations. These ideas of both individual liberties and underlying determinants of health are central to the global realization of a human right to health. Right. So let's dive deeper into this. Just how did the global community try to enact these principles in the form of laws and regulations over the years? Perhaps you could walk us through the recent history of the international community's regulatory efforts to prepare for the possibility of an event of the magnitude that we're now facing with COVID-19. What global preparedness systems were already in place to react to pandemics, and why do these systems now seem to be failing? These regulatory efforts have been built up over the last 150 years, increasingly creating accountability to respond to the infectious disease threats in a globalizing world. But this current pandemic has tested this essential foundation of the global health system. In seeking to understand the policies that are necessary to prevent, detect, and respond to disease, with states coming together to develop legal frameworks through the World Health Organization, the development of the International Health Regulations, or the IHR, has established through WHO a harmonized global surveillance and reporting system for infectious disease and set both minimum controls that nations must enact in order to control infectious disease, but also maximum limitations on individual rights, on state sovereignty, on commercial interests. These IHR, which were last revised in 2005, following the shortcomings in our response to the SARS crisis, seek to provide a legal framework to hold WHO 
accountable for building national capacity for infectious disease prevention and detection, and strengthening our capacity to address public health emergencies of international concern. But this COVID-19 pandemic has brought in a sharp focus, the limitations of the IHR, limitations in reporting public health risks to WHO, and we see in China the ways in which delayed reporting hampered WHO's ability to understand the scope of this threat and coordinate a public health response. We've seen limitations in WHO's ability to declare a public health emergency of international concern, with the WHO Director General working for a month to bring together an expert committee that could find that the conditions in China warranted this declaration. And then finally, we've seen weaknesses in coordinating national responses that are proportional to the public health risk, where we've seen states like the United States continue to neglect WHO guidance. Yeah. Really enlisting overwhelming and counterproductive restrictions on international traffic, on human rights, on global commerce. And with these violations from national governments, we begin to see weaknesses in our pandemic response, where WHO is facing difficulties in holding the world together in facing this common threat. Now, across the world, we're seeing governments using various methods to counter the spread of the virus, including social distancing, testing, and contact tracing. Although the approach is, of course, uh, and their outcomes uh, differ pretty widely. But there's one policy that seems to be almost universally adopted by countries around the world, and that is to ban international travel and close borders. You and others have argued uh, recently in Science Magazine that travel bans not only violate international law, but actually have very limited efficacy in containing epidemics. And I think that may come as a surprise to many in this country where the Trump administration has spared no occasion to tell the public that countless lives were saved as a result, in particular, of the Chinese travel ban from early February this year. No matter what's being said by governments, it's clear from a public health perspective that these travel restrictions have been ineffective to the global health response. And from an international legal perspective, that these responses undercut the global solidarity that is necessary in responding to this pandemic. Governments have agreed under international law not to take steps against WHO recommendations unless they are based on scientific principles, they are not more invasive than other alternatives, and that they are implemented with full respect for human rights and fundamental freedoms. These national health measures, everything from travel restrictions to flight suspensions to visa restrictions and border closures, meet none of these conditions. They're not based on scientific principles. They're far more invasive than necessary, and they've been implemented in ways that violate human rights. And because of that, we begin to see the ways in which these blunt restrictions have not stopped the disease from spreading. They led to chaotic conditions at national airports that we all saw on television, chaotic conditions with people fleeing home in ways that facilitated the spread of this pandemic. Yeah. We've seen the limited ability of necessary medical staff to travel where necessary 
to facilitate a global response. Because of these heavy-handed measures, because of these violations of international law, the entire world has been forced to isolate itself. We've brought entire industries to a halt. We've seen increasing limitations on individual freedoms. We've seen disruptions across the world to economies. And we haven't seen any real effect on global health, with millions being threatened despite or possibly because of these travel restrictions. Now, throughout the past years, we've witnessed a rapid and pretty steep rise in authoritarian nationalism around the world, probably born out of a rejection of the very kind of global cooperation we now seem to need the most. What do you think this crisis may mean more broadly for the international order, for democracy, and for human rights around the world? We desperately need collective action in responding to this global threat. Even as this pandemic has provided an opportunity for global solidarity, governments have responded, as you point out, with unrestrained nationalism, where we recognize that collective action is necessary. Governments have responded not by working together, both internally and externally, but by restricting individual freedoms, by neglecting human rights, by avoiding global collaborations. Governments have turned to rep repressive domestic measures as people increasingly live under authoritarian controls, as governments seek to emulate the Chinese approach to disease containment. We see not the effectiveness of these authoritarian controls, But rather than that, we see the need for cooperative action, for widespread testing and contact tracing, for public social distancing, for transparent governance and public participation. Instead of those things that we know are most effective, governments are increasingly using these states of emergency not as a basis for effective rights-based public health measures, but as a pretext for widespread human rights abuses and entrenchments of power in the hands of a select few. Now, some who listen to this may say, okay, I get all this. I don't want people to suffer or die in Africa or wherever. But at the end of the day, resources are limited and we have to take care of our own people first before we help others. Now, aside from the the moral, the ethical dimension of this. Are there any other reasons people around here should be concerned about COVID in the global South? From a moral standpoint, from a national security standpoint, from an economic development standpoint, we are truly only as strong as our weakest country. And so we've created systems whereby nations bear international obligations to support each other in building national capacity for infectious disease control. These have been incorporated into the international health regulations as a way of realizing global solidarity and confronting our common threats, requiring governments to collaborate with each other in ensuring that every state achieves its minimum core public health capacities. 
where those capacities are lacking, the world is now paying an immeasurable human suffering for these failures to implement our global responsibilities to each other. This is presenting a lasting threat to economic growth throughout the world. This is presenting an unprecedented threat to security and peace. This is presenting a lasting threat to global health and with it, global justice. We need to recognize the need for global solidarity through the World Health Organization in responding to this global threat. Where we neglect that imperative for global solidarity, we are all weaker. So Ben, I, I read that the United Nations Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, has warned that, you know, aside from the economic and security reasons that you just uh, so eloquently pointed out, there is actually an epidemiological reason to care about what happens in the global south because the virus unchecked with very, very rudimentary health systems in the global south may actually evolve faster, mutate, and then down the line come back to the quote-unquote north. Uh, what do you make of this warning? I think this is a valid public health threat. In some ways, our globalizing world has presented vast increases in opportunities for both emerging and re-emerging infections to appear, to proliferate in the initial outbreak, and then spread globally at a rapid pace. The question we need to ask ourselves through the United Nations is, will we develop globalized governance structures to meet the challenge of these globalizing health risks? A disease anywhere is a threat to people everywhere. It's that collective fear that should lead to collective action, a collective fear that we truly are only as strong as our weakest health system that we need to make sure that all countries have the ability under law and with financial resources to prevent diseases, to detect diseases when they arise and to respond to those diseases so that we can contain them rather than facing the unmitigated pandemic threat of this current virus. Ben, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for allowing me to speak on this pressing issue today. We truly are only as strong as our weakest health system. I was struck by that sentence. So how strong are some of the world's weakest health systems? Let's look at Somalia, which is not only one of the poorest countries in the world. According to the INFORM Global Risk Index, it is also the least prepared of all the world's countries when it comes to coping with the COVID crisis. My next guest is Dr. Deko Mohammed. She's an OBGYN and the founder of the Hargala Institute, a public health initiative in Somalia. She's been recognized globally for her work and holds an honorary doctorate from Chatham University. For over a decade, she ran a refugee camp of over 90,000 people outside Mogadishu. Prior to that, she worked with Doctors Without Borders during Somalia's measles outbreak. Today, she's once again bringing her intelligence, strategic thinking, human compassion, and resourcefulness to help her country brace itself for the ravages of disease, in this case, COVID-19. Her Twitter handle is dwakaf, that's D-W-A-Q-A-F. 
Here is my conversation with Dr. Deko Mohammed. Joining me from Mogadishu is Dr. Deko Mohammed. Deko, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Deko, the Somali Health Ministry is now reporting coronavirus cases of citizens with no travel history. Uh, this is obviously worrying because it could be an early sign of wide community spread. Um, what are the authorities doing to prepare for a possible epidemic in your country? And what lessons is the government drawing from experiences of China, Italy, the United States um, to develop a plan to face shortages of ventilators and protective equipment? In a nutshell, uh, at the moment, nothing, because we're in a panic mode. We lost first case yesterday evening, uh, but we're trying. We were doing much better last three weeks before this community outbreak, wide outbreak started. We were we were preparing our medical teams. We were uh, assigning an area where if COVID nineteen patients are seen, where we should transfer. We set up. Uh, the government set up the lines where people can call and uh, all all that. But yesterday, when we received first case and he passed away around 6 p.m. yesterday evening, whole country was shocked. You know, all the authority were in in panic because two of employee of Minister of Health was positive for COVID-19, and all of us as a health personnel we were communicating for the last two weeks with the Minister of Health. So all of us are in, in shock. So some of us might be positive COVID-19 and we are not aware because lack of testing. Yeah. And and I I, I guess, uh, Deco, one of the challenges uh, that I want to discuss with you is, you know, social distancing as a tool. Uh, it's really the only tool the world has to, against COVID-19. But what does social distancing look like in Somalia where people are often living in close proximity to one another and, you know, where there is a culture that's characterized by very strong community bonds? Uh, really, social distancing is a dream and, and a luxury in Somalia because majority of people are in our internal displaced camps where in one little small hut, maybe two meter by two meter, ten members of the family are living. So you, you can imagine there's no way social distancing. And we have a, yeah. a roads that very small, the, the markets are very packed. And so it's, it's very hard to imagine what means social distancing. And, but we're doing our best. We try to advocate a lot of masks last yesterday and today. So we've been active. So we're doing our best. But it's impossible. So let's talk a little bit about the response and the government plans. The health minister, Dr. Fauzia Abikar, recently said that Somalia is establishing a quarantine facility at Mogadishu Airport and awaiting more medical equipment from abroad. Um, how should Somalia prepare, given its current lack of capacity uh, that was really stretched very thin even before the crisis with only 19 beds available in intensive care units for the entire country? Really, yesterday, all the preparation were put in a test. So, and we, we uh, really felt the, the, you know, the lacks where they haven't prepared well because they only prepare in airport area, but the hospitals where COVID-19 patients should be admitted were not capable to receive them. So we were we will have a difficulty so it's it's now on a test so we doing they they trying their best but it, you can imagine in the city of Muktisho it's almost over 4 million people and 19 beds it's 
it's unheard of. So, and, and the staff is always less. We don't have enough medical personnel. We are rigorously training. Uh, we stopped all per in-person training. Now we do in a virtual training uh, as much as possible medical students now because we don't have enough doctors to tackle and to monitor. We don't have equipment. Uh, the roads, the airports are closed. I don't know where they're going to come through where. Uh, so every country is locked. So whatever we have, we need to find a way to to navigate on and, and use the whatever we have. So yeah. there's no other option. And and I think uh, Deco, the 19 beds are for the entire country of 15 million uh, people. Is that correct? Absolutely, it's for a whole entire country with 15 million. But even the four million in the in the Mogadishu city, they cannot accommodate. Forget about the whole entire country. Yes, uh, I can imagine it's it's a really extremely difficult situation that you're in, and I wonder if you know we've seen across the world uh, hospitals developing contingency protocols for the almost inevitable resource shortages uh, that they're facing. Um, and you know this is an exceptional situation in the United States, for example, but I believe countries like Somalia uh, routinely make such decisions given the many crises that, uh, that you have faced. What could the United States learn from Somalia's past experiences about resource rationing during emergencies? Uh, first of all, as a medical personnel, I will not. I cannot imagine any other my colleagues being in the position we are in every single day, even before COVID nineteen, because we have to take a very hard decision which patient I have to save first. For example, even if we have simple cholera outbreaks, we don't have enough fluid, so we have to choose which child to save. So that is the 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 really uh, hardest in our work we do in every single day America can learn is is to uh, prioritize and then also to as much as possible to save whatever you have equipment so the lack of misusing whatever you have and, and the abandon they get used to it around them so for us when we have any mask or any gloves or sterile it's like a gold and diamond to us so we treasure them and we keep them and we prioritize them so that is the, the the attitude of i have everything is different than when we have here as I, I i don't have anything but i have 10 masks i have to make sure and choose what i have to do with that so that's important yeah and deco you know of course uh, that begs the question you know given the international uh, nature of this crisis uh, what is somalia doing to work with other nations, especially neighboring countries, on a coordinated response in the region? We just so far information exchanging in a region in the closest to us, Kenya and Ethiopia, the borders they're both facing, they have their own cases. We are exchanging the knowledge and expertise. WHO just opened the, the labs in, in Ethiopia and Kenya, so we don't have to send all the way to South Africa. We received some testing material. So we're coordinating. They're helping us to confirm the cases of COVID-19, if it's possible, is positive or not. But I think we will coordinate more next two, three weeks when Africa hits hard in, in uh, COVID-19 and see even in the supply-wise if you can help because we are our neighbors. So, so far, the knowledge exchange is also crucial because COVID-19, we don't know how to treat it. We don't know how to handle it. 
uh, we at least learn Ebola a little bit for long term of, of going on and how to navigate and protect. But COVID-19, we don't know. And it's it's going like a wildfire. It's just like it spreads in the community so quick and so fast. And, and there is a, a whole dimension of this that pe- people may not be aware of, which is that Somalia has an ongoing terrorist threat in the form of al-Shabaab and al-Qaeda offshoot uh, in the Horn of Africa. Uh, and I wonder how al-Shabaab and the ongoing threat emanating from this group is complicating your effort and the government's efforts to warn and prepare citizens for the onslaught of this illness. I think in terms of medical personnel, it's maybe now ease the restriction on the borders that set up Al-Shabaab and all these insurgencies groups. But the government side, it will get more harder because the government is weak, financially is unstable. They don't have enough money. They All the resources of the government is focused to this insecurity. There's nothing for left for any other area of the government of the country so they were struggling hard and and as you see now our prime minister did his all best and only allocate five million to the COVID-19 campaign and that helped I don't know half of one hospital to set up without even ventilators so it's stretched the financial and also the efforts of the government it will be much much harder they cannot reach some area even the minister of health if they want to reach some other area of the country is locked, so in a controlled by al-Shabaab area. So civil society will fill that gap. So it's, it's very, very complicated when you have a layer of COVID-19 and you think about security. It really is, uh, Deco, like, like our common friend Sarah Lulo said, you are fighting uh, a wildfire with a cup of water. It's, this is really, it sounds like a very tragic situation that you're facing. I want to segue to another really important question that is the pivotal role that public communication plays in this crisis around the world. How is the discourse, and especially on social media networks like Facebook, uh, affecting the crisis in Somalia so far? It's really, uh, I don't know, maybe in the, in the world it helped. The social media was very uh, helpful, but in Somalia as a medical person, team, we're thinking it, it hurt because there was a lot of rumors running in social media that COVID-19 is not in the country, COVID-19 doesn't exist, COVID-19, you know, people are using to uh, as a social media to a tool to attack the government, the government lack of, uh, you know, resources, lack of effort and everything, and, and spreading rumors that uh, that's unacceptable to society for Unculturally, say no room. You know, this is not going to happen in a world countries like Somalia. We having the hottest time of the year, the hottest season. The virus will die. So those kind of lies and it's spreading and it affects because everyone will. We don't have a culture of factor checking. Uh, uh, we have a society where seventy percent are young people with a smartphones and social social media. So can you imagine most of them if they don't know how to fact check where this news come and they literally take in whatever social media is given, it's gonna harm whole country and our effort as a medical team. Within these uh, social media discourses, uh, across much of the Muslim world, religious authorities and scholars tend to have outsized influence over people's uh, perceptions and attitudes. So what role are religious leaders, uh, religious opinion leaders playing in, in Somalia as people form their opinions 
uh, of the crisis. It's real. It's a, it's a very sad. It's very sad to see they are really not acting and they are denying, and they encouraging people just to even do basic hygiene, hand washing, and wearing a mask and being careful. It's just oh that doesn't exist. It's everything can happen with will of Allah, you know, with the God's will, and you have to trust in God. This will never happen to you. So they are spreading. Really, it's a very hard, you know, very difficult message that you cannot fight against it. So because the people in Somali people, they deeply believe their religion. They trust deeply their leaders and imams and shiuchs. So it's very hard to uh, tell whatever the sheikh or imam telling. You cannot fight on that. So we are we started negotiating, talking to them and meeting them and just explaining them. And I think this it's it's sad to say that, but what happened yesterday and this week is what is going to happen. I hope our shiuks and a leader, uh, religious leader, will wake up and and change their message into the right direction. Deco, your own personal experiences working at the front lines in medicine, uh, I think, are a real asset here. You've worked in Russia, in the United States, with Médecins Sans Frontières. And I wonder how have these experiences uh, shaped your own approach so far as you advise the Somali government in its effort to contain COVID-19? Thank you. I think every experience, every country I lived, I learned something and then the most valuable thing is you have to be flexible and adaptable. Uh, I, I learned from my experience. Uh, every time I went, when I worked with the MSF, I thought it's going to be the hardest time. When I was uh, in my early uh, country, when Somalia was broken, uh, civil war, I had very, very tough days working as a, just not being even doctor and nurse or working with my mom. But as of today, with all that experience, with whatever I have seen, I am I'm extremely scared now, and it's very difficult for me uh, because I know the consequence that COVID-19 will cause, the death, the number of the effect, the poverty, the internally displaced people. And the saddest part is people are uh, oblivious. They, they don't even care. They don't even understand the magnitude, even including the government. So the, my hardest, this is my hardest time for all my experience, talking to the government, talking to the uh, my colleagues in health, uh, you know, front. It's just, it's very hard. I'm trying to scream loud inside and out and say it's like we we cannot do this. So it's, it's, it's very hard. It keeps me in the night to be awake. Uh, I don't know last time I have been this anxious in my life. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's uh, very, very difficult to imagine the situation that you are in, Deco, and I really wish you all the strength. I want to close by asking you if you have a message to those who are listening to this podcast. It, it is a difficult time. And the unique thing with COVID-19, it united us in different levels. So no matter where you are, no matter, you know, the resources, the, the environment, the luxury you have, we're all in the same boat. So I hope uh, COVID-19, after we come up this disaster and pandemic, I hope we will be more humane and more understanding each other and, and, and caring our planet because uh, we destroy it. And then this is... Um, we put ourselves in different boxes. 
But COVID-19, I think it put us all in one box. We don't have the luxury of social distancing and staying home. So majority of my society, if they stay home, they will die in hunger. But if they come outside as they are doing now, working daily, they will die in COVID-19. So both ways, there's there's a huge risk. So I hope um, this will teach uh, the world, especially in the West, they can understand the difficulties and how we all human. That's what I learned, and that's the message I wanted you to hear. We all scare as you scare, but our fears might be larger than yours because we don't have resources and an environment or the government caring us. That's so beautifully, that's so beautifully put, and a really powerful message, uh, Deco. I wish you all the strength you can muster, and I really, really hope that you will overcome this difficult period. Thank you very, very much for your time. Thank you for having me. As both my guests described, international solidarity during this crisis is not an act of charity or some theoretical foreign policy option. It's the only choice we have. In Somalia, as Deco says, we see the dangers of obliviousness and how disaster is inevitable when government and religious leaders don't encourage their people to protect themselves, especially in a context of utter poverty. And Ben's argument that travel bans may actually do more harm than good is a sobering idea given the already limited menu of options we have to respond to this crisis. Somalis, who may live with eight people in a small tent in an IDP camp and shop in overcrowded markets, can't just stay six feet away from each other. They need masks, they need doctors, supplies, they need our help. We must come together, opening borders for donations and providing targeted aid to make sure economies in the global south are not completely decimated by this crisis. We must pressure leaders in the industrialized world to do more to support the world's poorest countries, to strengthen, not undermine, the international system and its institutions like WHO. When doctors are fighting wildfire, with a cup of water. Humanity loses. So where does this leave us? I think it's become clear over the past weeks that this is the crisis people will be talking about in 30 or 40 years from now as an era-defining moment that shifted our paradigms, our assumptions about how the world works, how we relate to one another, and how we plan our lives. If there's one thing this crisis will teach us the hard way, it's that our fates are inextricably intertwined. It's that there's no such thing as a national response to an international problem. It's that Dr. Mohammed's fight in Somalia matters to us all. That's it for this episode. For updates on future installments of The Big Picture, you can follow me on Twitter by searching for Bella Bess. The Big Picture is made possible with the support of Yale Law School's Gruber program on global justice. My producers for this episode were Tasneem Idris and Ryan McAvoy. Alison Rapkin-Golden contributed research. Our theme music was composed by Ravi Krishnaswamy at Copilot Music. Thank you so much for tuning in. See you next time.